The following message titled, Worshiping God the Father, Understanding the Miracle of Adoption, was given by C.J. Mahaney at the Worship God 15 Triune Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. For more information and resources from the conference, visit www.worshipgodconference.com. Please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. The title of the message this evening is Knowing God as Father, Understanding the Doctrine of Adoption, and our attention this evening will be devoted to the first seven verses of Paul's letter to Galatians, and I will begin reading in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through. Russ Moore is the president of the SBC Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, and he serves the broader church most effectively as well. Russ is the author of a book titled Adopted for Life, the Priority of Adoption for Christian Families and Churches. The following is a most moving account by Russ of the occasion when he and his wife, Maria, adopted two boys from an orphanage in Russia. When Maria and I first walked into the orphanage, where we were led to the boys the Russian courts had picked out for us to adopt, we almost vomited in reaction to the stench and the squalor of the place. The boys were in cribs in the dark, lying in their own waste. Leaving them at the end of the day was painful, but leaving them the final day before going home to wait for the paperwork to go through was the hardest thing either of us had ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Marie and I could hear Maxim calling out for us and falling down in his crib, convulsing in tears. When Marie and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had brought for them. My mother-in-law gathered some wildflowers growing between cracks in the pavement outside the orphanage. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They'd never seen the sun, and they'd never felt the wind. They'd never heard the sound of a car door slamming or had the sensation of being carried along at 100 miles an hour down a Russian road. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what's waiting for you, a home with mommy and a daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. (laughs) But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, 
but they had no other reference point, and it was home. We knew the boys had acclimated to our home, that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming, and they wouldn't have to fight for the scripes. This was the new normal. They are now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. I still remember, though, those little hands reaching for the orphanage. And I see myself there. I'm always affected when I read this, and I have the deepest respect for those of you who have adopted children, and those children are wonderfully and unusually blessed. Adoption is a compassionate, unselfish act. It's deeply moving. It is a life-changing reality. But most profoundly, it is a picture of something even more significant. As moving as human adoption is, it is but a picture of an even greater reality, divine adoption. In his classic work, Knowing God, J.I. Packer explains the profound significance of divine adoption when he writes, what is a Christian, Dr. Packer poses? Well, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. Were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. A proposal accepted, Dr. Packer. According to Dr. Packer, the doctrine of adoption is the richest answer to the question, what is a Christian? And the truth of adoption gives us the deepest insights into the greatness of God's love. And this, this, this would form my hope this evening for this message. Here's my hope. It, it is my hope that each of you, each of you who have turned from your sins and trusted in the Savior for the forgiveness of sins, that each of you would be freshly reminded this evening of God's personal, his particular, and his passionate love for you as revealed in the doctrine of adoption. Over the past 40 years of pastoral ministry, I've interacted, oh, I've interacted with many genuine Christians who are not certain of God's love for them. They are not certain of God's love for them, and they are not secure in his love for them. In light of his holiness and their sinfulness, they can be suspicious of God and wonder if he truly does love them. They tend to think of God as, as merely tolerating them and often disappointed with them. D doubts about God's love for them personally are a frequent companion. And, and, well, perhaps you are one of them this evening. If so, here's my prayer. Oh, I, I pray, I pray that this passage, I pray that this passage and, and somehow this message will become a, a defining moment for you, altering your view of God and convincing you, convincing you of his love for you. Because it's, it's been my experience that those Christians who are not convinced of God's love for them have been largely ignorant of the doctrine of adoption. And introducing them to adopting grace ha has made a significant, even a dramatic difference in their lives. It, it has provided for them what Dr. Packer describes as the deepest insights the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. And for those of you who are worship leaders, well, listen, this doctrine should inform your choice of songs, 
It should influence your tone and content in your exhortations on Sunday or in any public context. And if you're a songwriter, here's what I hope. I I hope this passage, I hope this passage inspires you to write songs about the doctrine of adoption so that the church might experience the effect of singing about adopting grace because there are too few songs about adopting grace. So it is, it is just, I mean, the invitation from Bob as one of my dearest friends is a privilege. It's just, I'm honored, and it's just a privilege and a joy to be asked to teach to you on this particular subject this evening. Three points I want to draw your attention to, each, I trust, drawn from this magnificent text. And at the first point, in the first point, we're going to be moving at warp speed. So I hope you can keep up with me. I'm doing that intentionally so that we might spend more time on points two or three. First point, our prior condition, verses one through three. Our prior condition, our condition prior to adoption, preparing the way for God's sovereign, gracious intervention and action. It's, a, it's actually a challenge to begin in chapter 4, verse 1, because it's, it's a little like arriving late at a gathering of friends. Uh, the conversation has already begun, and you find yourself trying to discern what they're talking about. So let me do my best to provide you with a little background so that we might accurately discern what Paul is talking about as we, in effect, listen in on his communication to the Galatians and then discover its relevance for us this evening. The Galatian churches were made up of primarily Gentile Christians, Gentile Christians in in the process of, in essence, deserting the gospel because of the influence of false teachers and false teaching. It, It was as if a spell has been cast over them. Look quickly, chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul writes, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was as if a spell was cast over them, and that spell was the often subtle and always serious error of legalism. So, having previously received the grace of God through the proclamation of the gospel, note chapter 3, verse 1b, where Paul writes, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That is one of my favorite passages. It describes Paul's public preaching, HB, that I I hope in some way that what we have the privilege to do can, can reflect what Paul describes here as his public preaching ministries before their eyes. This was the effect of Paul's preaching. It was before their eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So they have previously received the grace of God through the proclamation of the gospel. But the Galatians were being tempted to add to their faith in Christ obedience to the Mosaic law as a means of salvation. That they were told that Christ was not enough. That the law was necessary for their salvation. And so by adding the law to Christ, they were being seduced. They were being seduced to now seek to earn forgiveness from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through their obedience to the law of God. And this, this was a complete misunderstanding and misapplication of the law. It was a distortion of the law, and it was ultimately a desertion from the gospel, because the law was never meant to save from sin, but instead was meant to reveal sin in light of the holiness of God and reveal our need for a Savior. And so in chapter 3, Paul provides the Galatians with a brief survey of the history of the law, informing them about the divine intent and purpose of the law in order to protect them from misunderstanding and misapplying the law. So notice in chapter 3, verse 19, he writes, why then the law? Why then the law? And then we discover why in verses 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And that explanation, why then the law, it continues in chapter 4. So in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul deploys yet another metaphor to illustrate why then the law. 
Israel under the law was like a child under the care of a guardian waiting for their inheritance. And although the inheritance belongs to them, they haven't come of age yet, and so they cannot use it. And in this way, actually, they're really no different than slaves. So for the Jews, the law held them captive. The law imprisoned them. The law was their guardian until Christ came in order that they might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So Paul is informing the Gentile Galatians about the purpose of the law in this regard to show them how foolish it is for them to base their relationship with God upon their obedience to the law. And while Paul's analogies refer to Israel under the law, there's just application to all of us, anyone who seeks to relate to God by law, obedience, performance, or in any way apart from the grace of the gospel. The the Galatians, the original recipients of this letter, that they were Gentiles, not Jews, and prior to their conversion, they were largely ignorant of the law, but they were no less enslaved by their sin than those under the law. And actually, their enslavement is described by Paul in verse 8. So look at chapter 4, verse 8, where he writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So prior to their conversion, they were enslaved to idols of their creation and imagination. They were enslaved to false gods. So, whether it's Jews imprisoned and enslaved by the law and their sin, or Gentiles enslaved by their idolatry and sin, all are enslaved. All are enslaved and all are humanly incapable of altering this condition. All are held captive by sin. All are in need of saving a salvation that God would graciously provide in Christ. But by abandoning, in essence, the gospel and subjecting themselves to the Mosaic law as a means of salvation, the Galatians were, in effect, returning, listen, they were returning to a pre-conversion form of enslavement. And so Paul is saying, you you are foolish. You, You are foolish to depend on what God intended to hold captive, to imprison to function as a guardian. The law was intended to be temporary and preparatory for the person and work of Christ. So for these Gentile Christians, their reliance upon the law for salvation, it was in effect a different but similar form of enslavement that they experienced prior to their conversion. And Paul asked them, why would you want to return to that? Look in verse nine. But now that you have come to know God, and he accents sovereign grace, or rather to be known by God, how? How how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So, the good and righteous law of God was never meant to be relied upon as a means of salvation. Properly understood, the law of God revealing the holiness of God and our sinfulness, it is a gracious gift from God to prepare us for the provision of a Savior. Our condition prior to conversion, whether Jew or Gentile, is enslavement to and by our sin, and we are humanly incapable of altering this condition, We need divine intervention. We need the intervention of God. And it is, it is the action of God himself that changes the way people relate to him. And that action is revealed beginning in verse four. So after this, in effect, what functions as bookends in one through three and eight and nine, bookends impressing upon everyone their enslavement, whether under the law or by their sin, then in verse four, Paul introduces the decisive action of God. Point two, God's decisive action, verses four and five. Oh my. Prepare your hearts to be overwhelmed. These verses, verse 4 and 5, that they reveal the gracious, decisive action of God in, in response to our enslaved condition. God's 
gracious provision for those who are enslaved by sin, those imprisoned under the law. The provision of a savior for those enslaved under the law and by their sin is just wonderfully revealed in verse four. So while we are enslaved to our sin and by our sin, God graciously acts. God graciously acts and everything changes. And in these words and from these words, we discover that God has graciously intervened to address our sinful condition. Verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So while we were slaves to sin and incapable of altering our condition, God sent forth his son, sent forth his son on behalf of enslaved sinners like you and me. So behold, behold in verse four, the love of God. Behold the love of God that is revealed through the initiative of God in sending forth his son for those who are enslaved to sin. Charles Spurgeon writes of this announcement and action that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. We moved not towards the Lord, but the Lord towards us. I do not find that the world in repentance sought after its maker, no. But the offended God himself, in infinite compassion, broke the silence and came forth to bless his enemies. That's what's going down in verse four. That's what the announcement in verse four is all about. The offended God himself in infinite compassion breaks the silence and he comes forth to bless his enslaved enemies. And the son sent forth by the father was uniquely qualified to be our savior. God sent forth his son born of woman born under the law. In order to be our savior, he must be like us, born of woman. And yet he must be, must be unlike us, God the Son, perfectly fulfilling the law. If he were not fully man, he could not have died in our place as our substitute. If he had not been a man, he could not have redeemed men. And if he didn't perfectly keep the law, he could not redeem us from the curse of the law. If he had not been a righteous and sinless man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous and sinful men. He was truly God and fully man. He was the mediator between God and men. God the Son, sent by the Father, born of woman, perfectly keeps the law and dies a unique death as the substitute for sinners on the cross. That's the announcement of verse four. That is God's decisive action or the beginning of it because it continues. We're just getting started with this stuff. In verse five, the purpose and the effect of the cross is described. Verse five, to redeem those who were under the law to redeem those who were held captive, captive by law and sin. God God sent forth his son with a purpose. God sent forth his son to redeem, to, to liberate from imprisonment by the law and enslavement to sin. So we were enslaved by sin. We were condemned by the law. We were justified objects of the righteous wrath of God. I, you, we, we, we needed someone to redeem us. We needed someone to liberate us from our sin and the just penalty for our sin. And in his infinite compassion, he takes action. He takes action on behalf of sinners like you and me. And who does he send forth? He sends forth his only begotten son. And he sends forth his son to be our sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing substitute. So that those who were once bound in slavery to sin and the consequences of sin are redeemed by the Savior's sacrifice for their sin. God sent forth 
his son to get this work done, the work of redemption. He sent forth his son to redeem. Redeem he did. Here's what you want to notice. The sentence isn't done yet. Okay? The sentence hasn't concluded yet. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, comma, so that, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So redemption wasn't the ultimate purpose. God sent forth his son with an atoning purpose and an adopting purpose. Atoning purpose and an adopting purpose. God, God went, God went beyond redemption. He went beyond redemption to Adoption. God's purpose did not conclude with redemption. It culminated with adoption. He, he made slaves into sons through the death of his son. And here, listen, here, right here, we encounter, right, right here, right here, you are about to encounter the deepest insights into the greatness of God's love. That's what's going down here. That's what we're about to encounter here. The deepest insight into the greatness of God's love is revealed actually in that phrase, so that, so that. All of the action of God, all of the action of God previously described was, listen, so that, it was all so that he might take this action. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And brothers and sisters, if all the action of God previous was so that we might receive adoption as sons, then we must give appropriate attention to the grace of adoption. Brothers and sisters, we, we must, if we don't to date, we must treasure this metaphor. We must treasure this metaphor because this metaphor has the potential to dramatically change our lives. So we must give appropriate attention to the grace of adoption. J.I. Packer argues that the doctrine of adoption has been unduly neglected. I think that's an accurate observation. It certainly applies to me as far as I think back uh, over the years, there's just no question. I, I have taught more, I've taught much more on the doctrine of justification than I have on the doctrine of adoption. Now listen, so there's, there's no misunderstanding. I don't think we should teach on the doctrine of justification less. No, not at all. Actually, the doctrine of justification must always remain primary because all saving benefits depend upon the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. So adoption depends upon justification. I don't think we should teach less on justification, but I do think, I do think we should teach more on adoption. And without separating justification and adoption, we, we must distinguish between justification and adoption because they aren't the same. So we must learn to distinguish between them so that we might treasure this metaphor and, and be transformed by this metaphor. So in order to help us with that distinction between justification and adoption, I've asked Dr. Packer to return and help us to understand the difference because understanding the difference is important. It, it is necessary. It's necessary to understand the difference in order for us to have the deepest insights into the greatness of God's love. So if you're a present, here's what I think Dr. Packer would say. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. 
Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. All right, our friend John Piper has said at different times over the years that books don't change people, sentences do. And we, we listen, we, we just read a sentence, we just read a few of them actually, with, with that potential. To be right with God the judge is a great thing but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. I wanted to bring that sentence to your attention because that sentence will help you understand this passage. It's what this is all about, helping us to understand and feel the full impact and effect of this passage. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. Oh, it is indeed an indescribably, indescribably great thing to be right with God. God the judge through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is a great thing to be forgiven of all our sins. It is a great thing to be freed from fear of future wrath. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. To be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And that is Paul's burden in this passage. Paul's burden in this passage is that we understand and experience the greater. Because it's possible to understand the great thing. He sent forth his son to redeem and fail to comprehend the greater so that so that we might receive adoption as sons. So let me ask you, let me ask you, do the words closeness, affection, generosity, do those words describe your view of God? Do those words describe your view of God? Do those words describe your experience of God. And if not, perhaps, perhaps you are ignorant of adopting grace. And if so, you have something to look forward to. (laughs) Because adopting grace is meant to convince you of God's love for you. Convince you. Convince you of his affection for you. Convince you of his closeness with you. Convince you of his generosity toward you. Adopting grace, adopting grace is about being personally wanted, personally wanted by God the Father. Adopting grace reveals the deep affection of God the Father for sinners like you and me. And adopting grace conveys that God The Father personally wants you to belong to his family and to know him as Father. So let me ask you, are you convinced? Are you convinced of God's love for you? Are you convinced? Because if you're not, oh, if you're not, the implications are serious. 
If you, if you this evening are uncertain about the disposition of the Father's heart towards you, it, 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 will, affect, well, it, it will affect everything. It's, it's not like you can manage this. It's not like you can confine the influence of this. I mean, if you are uncertain about the disposition of the Father's heart towards you, it, it will affect everything about you. It, it, if you aren't convinced of his love for you, you're going to be vulnerable to all manner of legalism and condemnation and introspection and despair. There's going to be a distinct absence of joy in your life. You're going to live your Christian life with a low-grade form of guilt and fear. All Christians are to be certain they are loved by God because all Christians have been adopted by God. So if you're a Christian, you, you are to be certain that you are loved by God because of adopting grace. You're to be certain you're loved by God, but where you look for that certainty makes all the difference in whether you experience that certainty. So where do you look for it? Where, where do you look in order to be convinced of God's love for you? I'm asking this question because we, are, we all have a certain impulse to look in the wrong place. We all, we all have an impulse to look within ourselves to find a reason for his love. And that impulse will not serve us. It, it, if you look within yourself to find some reason for his love for you, you will not find it there because it doesn't exist there. Pretty much all you'll find there is sin. Puritan Thomas Watson wisely wrote, we have enough in us to move God to correct us, but nothing to move him to adopt us. Therefore, he says, exalt free grace and begin the work of angels here. Bless him with your praises who hath blessed you in making you his sons and daughters. Wise counsel. Yeah, we've got enough in us to move God to correct us, but nothing, nothing to move him to adopt us. So we have this impulse to look within to find a reason for his love. And I think I have this impulse. I have a suspicion you have this impulse because I think we have an arrogant desire to find something within that qualifies us as worthy of his love. I think I have this impulse because I want to find in myself some, some reason to be deserving of his love. And my friends, that is a false hope. <laughs> it is a false hope that you will discover something within you that inclined God to love you because there is not a thing within you or me that inclined God to love you or me. And the more you look within, the more you're gonna discover reasons for him to correct you and not love you. And I actually think this really forms the daily challenge for each of us. This is the daily challenge theologically. It's the daily challenge personally. It's the daily challenge experientially. How? How each day can I be certain of his love for me since each day it is clear to me I am unworthy of his love? This passage, oh, this passage, this passage protects us. This passage protects us from the arrogant, futile impulse to look within to find a reason for God's love toward us because, because this passage directs our gaze away from ourselves. This passage directs our gaze outside of ourselves. This passage directs our gaze to the heart of God. This passage directs our gaze to the initiative of God. This passage directs our gaze to the decisive action of God revealed in verses four and five. This passage is the theological remedy for our arrogant, subjective impulse. And in now some 40 years of pastoral ministry, oh my, I, I have encountered many, many genuine Christians in, in the midst of discouragement and, and depression and, and despair who, who are saying and lamenting, how could God 
love me? Why would God love me? And they're looking within. They're looking within to find a reason for his love and discovering instead all manner of sin and then assuming and concluding he couldn't possibly love them. They have assumed and concluded, because I am unworthy, because I'm unworthy, I'm unloved. And when I've had the privilege to interact with these people and try to care for these people as they have humbly communicated their discouragement, often what I seek to do is serve them by by saying something unexpected to them. Rather than disagreeing with them, and rather than affirming something wonderful about them, I will say something like this to them. Actually, I will say exactly this to them. I am as perplexed as you are as to how God could possibly love you. I mean, given what I know of you, I find it difficult to love, uh, love you. So, I actually find myself clueless as to why and how God could love you. My, my purpose, my purpose is to affectionately and humorously challenge their arrogant impulse to look in the wrong place for the assurance of his love. What do I want to do? Well, instead, what I want to do is I want to direct their attention away from themselves. I want to direct their attention away from themselves and outside themselves, as Paul does to the Galatian churches. I want to direct their attention to a hill called Calvary. I want to direct their attention away from themselves and outside of themselves to God the Father, who sent forth his Son to redeem them from their enslaved state, so that, so that, so that they might receive adoption as sons, so that they might receive, not achieve, so that they might receive, not achieve, so that they might receive what? So that they might receive adopting grace, adopting affection. That's where I want to direct their attention and their gaze. I, I, want, I want to help them to understand they are not worthy of his love and they will always be unworthy of his love, but they will always be loved because God adopts us because of his love. So to understand adopting grace is to be amazed by grace and increasingly amazed as the years go by. And understanding adopting grace will protect you from becoming less amazed by grace as the years pass. To, To understand adopting grace is to be convinced of his personal, passionate love for you. So, so, so no wonder, no wonder in 1 John 3, John writes, behold, 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 opening word, behold. By the way, if you begin a sentence with behold, you, you are creating an expectation. So, so this better be good. This better be, you, you best follow behold with something worth beholding. And oh my, oh my, does he. Behold, John writes, Behold, as he captures all our attention and directs our attention to what? Behold this. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. What does he want us to behold? He wants us to behold adopting grace. What is he celebrating? He is celebrating adopting grace. John has seen something and it has changed his life. 
He has beheld it and it has transformed his life. And in writing this sentence in 1 John, he is inviting the rest of us to behold with him, not to behold endless introspection of ourselves. No, get your eyes off your bad self. Turn your gaze away from yourself and instead turn your eyes to the Father who sent his Son. Turn your eyes to this manner of perplexing, mysterious, gracious love that the Father has given to us that we, you, I, should be called the children of God. My... Listen, if, if you are a Christian, given the nature of this conference, I'm assuming you are, then, then this is true. This is true of you. This is true of you. This is true of you, and therefore I'm saying, we don't please God when we don't receive this and revel in this and rejoice in this. I think if we don't receive this, We grieve him. Listen, it grieves God when we do not receive his love. John Owen effectively effectively captured this. He effectively captured this and he conveyed this when he wrote the following. The greatest sorrow, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father What might that be? The greatest sorrow and burden I can lay on the Father. The greatest unkindness you can do to him. Greatest sorrow and burden I can lay on the Father. Greatest unkindness I can do on him. To him, just pause. What, What would that be? Well, Owen argues, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is, is not to believe that he loves you. Well, what? Like, help me out here. Like, why why would this be the greatest sorrow and burden that I can lay on the Father? Like, why would that be the greatest unkindness I could do to him? Here's why. Because of all he's done to demonstrate his love for us. Because he sent forth his son to redeem and to adopt. So in light of all God has done to demonstrate his love for us, it's as if he says to us, not love you? Not, not love you? What, what, what more could I do to convince you of my love for you? I, I sent forth my son for you. I sent forth my son to die for you. In your place condemned he stood. I, I crushed him. I crushed him with the full fury of my righteous wrath and he bore the full weight of your sin on the cross. Not love you? I sent him to suffer in your place so that I might redeem you but not only redeem you, so that I might adopt you. So, it's as if God says, what more could I do? What else could I do to convince you of my love for you? So understandably, it doesn't please God when we don't joyfully receive what he has lovingly and sacrificially Provided. So, here's my recommendation. If you aren't convinced, if you aren't convinced of his affections, his closeness, his generosity, here's what I recommend. I recommend you familiarize yourself with the doctrine of adoption. I I recommend, if necessary, you restrict your spiritual diet to this topic until you are convinced until you are convinced of his love for you. In in order to experience more of the affection of God, the closeness of God, and the generosity of God, I, I recommend you study the doctrine of adoption until you're assured of and secure in the love of God. 
For here you're going to encounter the deepest insights the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. So I recommend you immerse yourself in extended study of this passage and other passages on this doctrine. I recommend you allow a godly scholar to hold your hand and lead you as you study and explore this topic. I've got three book recommendations for you. First one, quite obviously, is the classic work Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you have the book, uh, the next time you are near the book... (laughs) Open the book immediately to chapter 19 and immediately begin reading and memorizing chapter 19 uh, titled Sons of God. I also recommend Children of the Living God, Delighting in the Father's Love by Sinclair Ferguson, and then a fine work Adopted into God's Family by Trevor Burke. Oh my. As as you study this doctrine, you, you, you can anticipate experiencing the affection of God and the closeness of God and the generosity of God. You can anticipate being convinced of the greatness of his love for you. Finally, third, the experience of adoption. Verse six, the experience of adoption. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So now in verse 6, Paul draws our attention to the person and work of the Spirit in relation to adoption. So let it not escape our notice that all three members of the Trinity are involved in this. And once again, verse 6, Paul directs our attention to the initiative of God, once again revealing the love of God. By the way, the more you are aware of the initiative of God in your salvation, the more you will be amazed by the grace of God. And these verses, they're just saturated with sovereign grace. So we've got our position and status as adopted sons and daughters. That was secured by God's initiative and action in sending his son, verses 4 and 5. And then verse 6, our experience of adoption is the result of God's initiative and action in sending his spirit. So the gift of adoption is accomplished by the son, and it's applied to our lives by the spirit. So this this inaugural special work of the Spirit, it's it's evident in conversion as we transition from slaves to sons, from fearing God as judge to addressing God as father. There's a new cry in the heart of the newly converted Abba, Father. Oh my, this this is the precious privilege and the common experience of all genuine Christians. This, This cry is evidence that we have received adopting grace. So actually in verse 6, Paul does direct us to look within. This, this in effect, is theologically informed introspection. It's for the purpose of discerning the work of the Spirit in the form of the new cry, Abba, Father. And this cry testifies to our adoption and it assures us of God's love for us. So this, this cry is an evidence of adoption. It's also a means of assurance. And actually, I I hope this evening that you find assurance of his love for you in an unexpected place. And at this time, I'm going to ask my historical hero, Charles Spurgeon, to explain. Mr. Spurgeon wrote, I once knew a good woman who was the subject of many doubts, and when I got to the bottom of her doubt, it was this. She knew she loved Christ, but she was afraid he did not love her. Oh, I said, that is a doubt that will never trouble me, never, by any possibility, because I am sure of this, that the heart is so corrupt naturally that love to God never did get there without God's putting it there. You may rest quite certain that if you love God, it's a fruit and not a root. It's the fruit of God's love to you and did not get there by the force of any goodness in you. You may conclude then with absolute certainty that God loves you if you love God. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant pastorally, brilliant theologically, brilliant personally. Let me me just draw your attention to a living illustration of this, I think, that we experienced this evening. I I think this cry in verse 6 has been evident this evening. I think it's been present and evident, and particularly present and evident in a pronounced way, in and through your singing. If you were singing, and you were singing, with sincerity and with affection and with passion, well then, that, that is a reflection, that is an expression of the experience in verse 6. That is an evidence of adopting grace. And that, that cry 
is an evidence of adopting grace, and it also is a means, should be, can be, hope is for you, a, a means of assuring you of God's love. So just, just, just pause, just think back for a minute. I couldn't help but thinking back as we were singing. I was, I was thinking back to the evening that I was converted. It, it is, it is a, a, a vivid memory, though, though now we're talking some 42 years ago. It is a vivid memory to me as if it happened last night. I was converted in a dramatic way. If you were converted in a gradual way, your conversion is no less dramatic than mine. So as I tell my story, it is not to provoke some kind of envy in your heart or uh, any, any longing to have a similar experience. No, no. The, the, the issue isn't whether you can locate the moment of conversion. The issue is when you became aware that verse 6 was working in your soul. That's the issue. <laughs> So for me, I, I can remember it vividly. It was in between tokes on a hash pipe. In between tokes on a hash pipe, a friend of mine who had only been converted for some two weeks came to share the gospel with me. And as he shared the gospel with me, and to my knowledge, this is the first time I had ever heard the gospel. As he shared the gospel, I smoked hash. And at one point in his communication and in between tokes, God acted on my soul and I experienced the miracle now I know of regeneration and by the grace of God turned from my sins and trusted in the Savior for the forgiveness of sins. It happened dramatically. It happened in a moment. And one of the ways I was immediately aware that I was converted was that cry. There was now a new cry in my soul. There was a cry that didn't exist a minute ago. It didn't exist five minutes ago. No, no. Every other cry prior to that moment was a, was a self-exalting cry. Every other cry prior to that moment was, was, a, was a cry to immerse myself in the pleasures of sin. Every other cry was a sinful cry. But in that moment, a new cry was placed in my heart. And that would become immediately evident in my participation in singing. And what you had to know, I'm sure this doesn't surprise you, is prior to that moment and when that cry was placed in my heart, and in all, singing I did was singing of self-exaltation, singing the, the current music of the day, which exalted myself and which exalted all manner of pleasure and participation in sin. Well, now, now there's a new cry. Now, now I'm crying, Abba, Father. And now I find myself gathering with other Christians and I am singing. And so what, what is the explanation? Brothers and sisters, what's the explanation for what took place here tonight? Think back prior to your conversion. If you had stumbled upon a group like this, found your way into the back and observed the passionate expression and communication of affection for Father, Son, and Spirit. Would you not have thought it strange? Remember when you did think it strange and then you were converted and then you found yourself in the midst of an assembly like this, singing with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How did that get there? Who put that there? God put that there. That, 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 that didn't, that wasn't created by some force in your life and heart. No, God put that there. So as you are aware of that cry and as you are giving voice to that cry in song, it should be a means of assuring you of God's adopting grace. For if you love him, well, that is a confirmation that he loves you because it's, <laughs> it's a fruit when you sing. It's not the root. Oh my. You may conclude, Mr. Spurgeon says, with absolute certainty that God loves you if you love God. So let me ask you, Christian, are, are you aware of this work of the Spirit? Are you aware? Aware of this cry to the Father within your soul? because it's possible to grow less aware. It's possible to be genuinely converted and grow less aware of this cry. 
less sensitive to this cry. Paul's actually writing to those who are growing deaf to this cry of the Spirit within because they've been seduced by legalism and they are no longer enjoying adopting grace. And our temptations are no different. Many voices cry out for our attention each and every day, seeking to distract our attention from the voice of the Spirit, crying, Abba, Father, seeking to turn our attention away from adopting grace. The cry of indwelling sin, the cry of legalism, the cry of condemnation, these are loud and distracting voices. So let me ask you, which voice are you more aware of? And if you find yourself distracted by other voices and the noise of your soul that's created by sin and legalism and condemnation have, have seemingly silenced this cry, Abba, Father, oh, then let me, let me just recommend that you refamiliarize yourself, you familiarize yourself afresh with adopting grace so that you become more aware of this cry of the Spirit in your soul. Finally, verse seven. So you are no longer a slave but a son. Now, that seems to be a transition here. Seems to be a transition from, from general instruction to a very personal exhortation. So you. So you. It's as if Paul were standing here looking out and identifying individuals one by one. So, so you. So you. So you, so you, so you, so you, so you, and you, you, yes you, so you, so you, so you are no longer a slave. I mean, it it is as if in this verse God is making eye contact with us. He wants us to be certain of his love. He wants us to receive his love. So, you and you, 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 and you. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. But the verse isn't finished yet. This is the never ending passage of scripture. It just keeps going on and wonderfully on. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And listen, and if a son, then an heir. In the ancient world, a father's inheritance could only be passed along to a son. Therefore, if a father didn't have a son, he would by necessity adopt so that he could have an heir. But God, the Father, did not need to adopt anyone. And he certainly did not need to adopt sinners like us because the father had a son. The father had an heir. So there was no need for the father to adopt sinners like you and me. And yet, he did. He did, thus revealing the gracious nature of his heart, the nature of adoption, thus revealing his love. We we are sons, therefore, as if we haven't been overwhelmed enough, sent forth his son to redeem so that we might be right with God the judge, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Sent forth his spirit into our hearts, transforming our lives so that we cry, Abba, Father. Let's add to that, you're also an heir. So as heirs, We are recipients of an inheritance. 
So what is our inheritance? Our inheritance is all God has promised. And most importantly, our inheritance is God himself. Trevor Burke says, we are not only heirs of what God has promised, but we will inherit God. What? What? You and I we're going to inherit him? Yes. So you, your son, you're no longer a slave to the law or your sin. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. And we aren't done yet. Because Paul doesn't want us to forget that this is only possible. This is only possible and all possible through God. Through God. One cannot be a son through human effort. Adoption is a gift of God's grace and therefore excludes all human effort. One can only be a son through God. So this passage concludes by appropriately drawing our attention to God, not ourselves, by appropriately drawing our attention to God and away from ourselves. All this, all that is magnificently revealed in this passage, it's all through God and it's all because of God and therefore all glory should be assigned. God. Let's pray.